How do I say hello in Amharic? Salamish. Salame salamish. Salame salamish. <laughs> okay. Now we know. First Samuel Chapter Ten. Let's pray before we start. Father, we thank you for your word. There's some so much great stuff in these chapters, Lord, in First Samuel. I pray, Lord, with your help. that I would not let a word fall to the ground, Lord, but that your word would, would go out in such a way that it's received and strengthens us so that we can stand in love, stand in, in grace. And as that as that verse said, that we can also live in the death of Christ in, in a way that is, just really brings out our humility and our worship. And Father, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, where are we? We are in 1 Samuel, and... Israel, when they saw the behavior of Samuel's sons, which was really, really bad behavior, they started to cry out for a king. They cried out for a king. And God wanted to be their king. Samuel, the prophet, was grieved. And he went to the Lord and said, what am I supposed to do about this? And the Lord says, just let them have their king, but warn them what this king is going to be like. And there was just that astonishing uh, warning that was given to them about what this king, a king along the lines of what they wanted would be like. He would take, 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 is what he would do. And he wouldn't give. And uh, so at that point, chapter 9, we saw that uh, God chose Saul, and we'll see, he would become a king, uh, the kind of king that they were calling out for. They were calling out for a king like a king of like all the other nations. And they would get it in Saul. They would get it. So Samuel and Saul meet up. In chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his, Saul's head, and kissed him and says, and said, 
Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? And we will discover at a, at a, at a later time when Saul really goes south that it's going to grieve Samuel exceedingly. His heart really connects with Saul and in a deep, deep way, in a really cool way. And um, here we see the, the expression of, uh, of affection. Now, it may, may have been uh, just a right that what you do when you, uh, when you crown a king, but certainly the flask of oil was, and we'll see that again. Samuel's going to do that with King David, but um, also it says he kissed them. And we will learn that uh, Samuel does develop a great affection. It's going to tear him to pieces when Saul goes south. And then Samuel says to Saul, because remember, Saul is far from home at this point. He had gone to look for his father's donkeys, and he's way, way, way away from home. And he thought the reason he was looking, that he, was, he had left home was to look for his donkeys. The real reason was God was sending him to meet Saul, right? So Samuel sends Saul back to his home. And he says, when you have departed from me today, you will find Two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelhah. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and he's worrying about you saying, what shall I do about my son? And then you shall go on forward from there and come to the terebinth tree of Tabor there three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. After that, you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it will happen when you have come... Uh, when you have come there to the city, that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And let it be. When these signs come to you, that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you, you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will uh, come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you, and you shall and show you what you should do. And so uh, here you have Samuel sending him home. And just, it we'll, see in a, it we'll see in a minute, Saul started well. And we began this uh, a couple weeks ago when we were uh, in the previous chapters. He really did start well. And anyone who is starting well with any kind of humility is thinking, 
what, king of Israel? You get to be kidding me. And so what Samuel um, has already done in chapter 9 with Saul is, is when Saul first um, met Samuel, said, what did Samuel say to him? I know you're looking after your donkeys. How does Samuel know that? Well, it's a word of knowledge. It was told Samuel uh, in uh, to tell Samuel told that to Saul in order to to really prepare Saul's heart that this thing about him becoming king is from God. In other words, it was a sign, and so he got a sign before at the time he met Samuel, and Samuel sends him off and. He's going to give him other signs, and he goes through with them, uh, these other uh, signs. He's, uh, he, he, um, it, it says in verse 2, you're going to depart from here, you're going to find two men by Rachel's tomb, and they're going to tell you where your donkeys are. And so obviously when that happens, and it did happen, when Saul met those two men and they told him where his donkeys are, he, he's going to be thinking to himself, wow, when Samuel... uh, poured oil on my head and he's told me I was king he wasn't kidding it must be true now interestingly enough I won't say coincidentally it's God incidentally God incidentally or whatever the word is in Romans chapter 12 which we're going to be in uh, not this Sunday but the following Sunday the first two verses have a lot to say about how to determine God's will when in situations where the Bible does not expressly tell you what to do. In other words, if you have two, di- if you're unemployed and you have two different jobs, what in the world? Which job do I choose? Uh, this type of thing. Um, if I am seeking the Lord as to a spouse, I mean, and a person has uh, been introduced into my life, how do I know? Or there's a ministry that. I think maybe I should do. How do I really know it? Probably as much as any other question I ever get, or rather any other prayer request I ever get, it's, I want to know the will of God. I want to know the will of God. How do, how do I know the will of God? Well, so happens that Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 2, you don't have to turn there, but we're going to be talking about it, it uh, determining the will of God is, is, is several things, and I'm not going to go into them now. I'm going to deal with this um, in the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. But Romans chapter 2 does begin just really quickly with, it's got to start, start off by this, don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may be able to prove what's God, what is God's good and acceptable will. In other words, the first thing you got to do is stop living a worldly life and repent. Be conformed to what the Word of God tells you to do, and then you seek Him. And it says, and, 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 and you will be able to determine the will of God. Now, interestingly, also for Samuel, and, and I'll be going over this when I'm I'm going to have a message that's going to be, how do I determine the will of God? Well, we already saw it here too. Uh, uh, there's a couple other things that, there's a couple other things, and I'm just teasing you, hopefully. You're like, oh, I can't wait for this sermon. Okay, 
I'll just tease you a little so you get to, you're going to even more want to come to this sermon in a couple weeks in Romans chapter 12. But um, there's a couple other factors too. Not only do you not be, be conformed to the world, uh, world and be transformed by the word of God, by the renewing of your mind, but in Samuel um, we also say, get counsel from godly people. Who did, who did Saul get counsel from? Oh please, that's the easiest question I've asked in three months. Shout it out. Who did Saul get counsel from? Samuel. That's right. He got counsel from Samuel. In addition to that, there were some signs, right? There were some signs. And, 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 and um, you know, we get into a lot of trouble in, in counseling over the years. The biggest trouble people get into is that's the only thing they're looking for is signs. If I'm supposed to marry that girl, when I walk into the sanctuary, she's going to have a green dress on. Whoa, she has a green dress. Whoa. Be careful. Be very, very, very careful of signs. I can't tell you how many times this type of thing, particularly with matters of the heart, don't trust your heart. Proverbs says, he who trusts in his heart's a fool. That's what the Bible calls clarity in a verse. And, 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 but what you do see here um, a couple of those factors. Um, you don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the Word of God. Get counsel from, uh, uh, from someone who is um, a, a godly man or woman. And, but, but signs are uh, important too, but it's going to be a pattern of signs. It's going to be a good, good pattern um, of signs that you're going to see. And, and, and it, it can get difficult because, you know, Satan can all... You know, I remember when we were first thinking about going up to uh, uh, Miami. Oh, boy, did Satan uh, throw some obstacles in the way. But um, um, you will see, though, a, a pattern of signs. And so he's going to see now a pattern of signs. And they're going to they're gonna encourage him because he, he's going to... Uh, the signs are going to encourage him. You see, God doesn't let, leave us as orphans. He knows how fragile we are. And when he's directing us in a, per, in a, in a certain direction, he'll open up, he'll open up doors he, he will confirm with signs. Uh, but um, I would say signs is, is the, the last one on, on the list uh, because uh, so oftentimes our heart will see signs that aren't signs at all. But uh, anyway, uh, it says in verse 6, it says Samuel tells him, Okay, you're going to go to this place, you're going to see a bunch of prophets prophesying, verse 6, and this, I tell you, every single time I read this verse, it just does something to me. It's one of those verses that just does something to me. Verse 6 says, then the Spirit of the Lord will uh, come upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and, and this is what does something to me, the next five verse, and you'll be turned into another man. Ah, I'm sorry, it just did something to me again. This is what happens when you have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God turns you into a different woman. It turns you into a different man. And Saul's going to begin well. First um, Samuel chapter 11, it, it's, it's, one of my, it's one of my favorite chapters to teach because uh, Saul basically hits the home run out of the park, over the turnpike, into another stratosphere. 
in, in 1 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to see him. If, that, if all we knew about Saul was 1 Samuel chapter uh, 11, we would think this guy belongs in Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith. Um, but anyway, we're not there yet. But, uh, but it, it says, the, the spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will be turned into another man. Now, very, 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 very briefly, I promise, very briefly, three different prepositions are used in the Bible for our relationship or the relationship with a human being and the Holy Spirit. The first one is the Holy Spirit being with you. John chapter 14, verse 17 Jesus says, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. In other words, he's not in them yet. So the Holy Spirit is oftentimes before, not oftentimes, every time, prior to someone's salvation, the Holy Spirit is with them starting to do stuff in their lives, just starting to do things. Uh, and you may be able to look at your pre-Christ, pre-Jesus life and, and think back at this or that and think, wow, that was from God, but I was so far from God at then. And, and, and so we are told that um, before salvation, the Holy Spirit, He is with us. Remember John 7, uh, verses 37 and 39 that, uh, again, another verse that moves me every time I, uh, I read it. Jesus is standing up on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which I think was in a total of eight days, maybe in seven days. But he, he gets up at the last day of the feast. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But then... Verse 39 says, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So number two, the Holy Spirit is with us. When we're saved, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us. 2 Corinthians 1, 21, 22 now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us as God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So at, right at the time of salvation, every single believer is invaded by the Holy Spirit, who never leaves, ever. He stays there until a person passes from death to, uh, to, to, to life and, and receives a glorified body. So there's, there's with, there's in, and what's the last one? Shout it out. Upon, very good. Uh, and that's the one we see in verse six. And it's typically in the Old Testament, you do not see, you do a couple times see reference to the Holy Spirit being in someone, but it's very rare. Most of the time, it's the Holy Spirit coming upon someone. We saw that with Samson. The Spirit of God came upon Samson. Well, he comes, uh, he's going to come upon Saul as well. And uh, 
That's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we know it from Acts chapter 1, verse um, 8. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus was glorified. It was after his resurrection. For 40 days, he, he, he talked with the disciples. He, he appeared at various places, was seen at one time by over 500 men, Paul, uh, Paul says. And uh, they, the, right before he was taken up to heaven, he's like, when are you going to come again and, and establish the kingdom? He doesn't answer their question. <laughs> Instead, uh, it says, it's, well, actually, he does. He says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons uh, which uh, the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Same thing, same preposition, upon. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so when a person is saved, they go from having the Holy Spirit with them to the Holy Spirit in them. But all of us desperately need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And that is the Holy Spirit coming upon us. And what we read in Acts chapter 1, it's for the purpose of ministry. It's not so we can um, do backflips in a church somewhere and be laughing or groveling on the ground. It's to do ministry. That's the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I cannot even imagine. um, I remember, you know, hearing about a church plant in this area that did not believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit or even that the Holy Spirit gifts are for today. They were, they, they clung to the theology which is called cessationist, which the gifts of the Spirit were cut off at the end of the, um, at the end of the early church. I can't even imagine trying to plan a church without the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says all we need to do is ask for it. If you've never been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Please come to me. Come to one of the leaders of the church. We will pray that you are baptized. It says that the whole, it it says in verse 6, he says, then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will prophesy with them and you'll be turned into another man. Verse 9, it says, so it was when he, Saul, had turned his back to go from Samuel, that God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. And then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. And it happened when all who knew him formerly saw that he indeed prophesied amongst the prophets, that the people said to one another, What is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And then a man from there answered and said, but who is their father? Now that's an that's a inter- interesting little f- phrase there. What in the world does that mean? Well, I, that doesn't seem like an answer to the question. Uh, they, they say in verse 11, what is this that's come upon this Saul guy? Is he among the prophets? Is he the son of Kish? Well, actually, some translations do say, is he the son of Kish? Um, But this says, what is this that has come upon the son of Kish? In what way is this man in verse 12 responding to their questions by asking another question? 
but who is their father? Well, I think it's pretty simple. What he's saying is, who his father is, has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit coming upon him. And what he's doing, there's a school of prophets. Remember, he had just, uh, how many of the prophets were there? How many? Was there, is there a number here? It just says a group of prophets. And essentially what he's doing is pointing at the group of prophets saying, well, who is their father? It doesn't matter who their father is. What has birth to do with prophecy? I just some, last night, uh, someone was telling me that um, a pastor they knew criticized Calvary Chapel because so many of them in the movement have been uneducated and they used to be drug addicts and alcoholics and um, they're, all, they are, they're off just teaching the Bible. Who do they think they are? Uh, it just was in this conversation uh, last night. And I would guess I would respond to them. First of all, I'm proud to be part of a movement that has that as a foundation. I, I, I mean, it, it, it does say in the book of Acts when the Pharisees and the chief priests saw Peter and John and the, and the other uh, disciples, it says they knew they were uneducated men and marveled at how much wisdom they are. I'm proud to be part of the movement. Um, but, but, but I think the, the answer is similar to this. What does any of that have to do with receiving the Holy Spirit, being empowered by the Holy Spirit, not having an education? Where does it say in the Bible you have to go to seminary? Many of them, by the way, are, if in case you haven't heard, are cemeteries, and that's true because I've been to a couple. They were cemeteries. And, and, and so the same thing here. It has nothing to do with this group of, of, of prophets. It has nothing to do with who their father is. Therefore... Continuing on in verse 12, it became a proverb, is Saul also amongst the prophets? Meaning, if there was someone being used by God, and they're like, how can that person be used by God? Someone would say, well, hey, is Saul among the prophets? In other words, anyone can be used by God. Anyone can. Verse 13, and when he had finished prophesying... He went to the high place. Then Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, where did you go? And so he said, to look for the donkeys. When we saw that uh, there, there were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, tell me, please, what did Samuel say to you? So Saul said to his uncle, uh, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But after, about the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell him what Samuel had Said So we're going to see in a little while, he's still, there's some serious insecurity with him, as I think would happen with most people. <laughs> um, uh, you know, he's just unsure about this whole king thing. Verse 17, then Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the children of Israel, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God who himself saved you from all your adversities and your tribulations and you have said to him, no, set a king over us. So God viewed that as a rejection. And it's just a wonderful reminder to us. We don't need a priest. We don't need a king. We can go directly to God. But essentially, that's what they were saying. We don't want to go directly to God. Give us a king. 
Continue on verse 19. Now, therefore, present yourself before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen. And Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. So he's essentially being introduced to the kingdom of Israel as their king. But when they sought him, he could not be found. In other words, they said, okay, Saul's going to be king. Would Saul please come up? It's like, whoa, where is he? Verse 22, therefore they inquired of the Lord further. Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, there he is hidden amongst the equipment. Does anyone have the King James? What does the King James say? I think it's stuff. There he is hidden amongst the stuff. You can shout it out if you find the King James. But uh, I I love the King James. Verse 23. um, So they ran and brought him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from the shoulders upward. So you can read. If you you listen to 10 different preachers, they'll give you 10 different opinions about what's really going on there. um, With Saul hiding amongst the equipment. And um, I, so I'll just give you mine. I will tell you, a lot of people will start, a lot of preachers start pounding their fist and saying, here he is, the disobedient Saul, and, and, and how could he do this? He's not being obedient and this type of thing. I, I mean, the big, big, huge problem with that is we've already seen that he, is, he has started fairly well. I mean, it, you saw his tender heart uh, there in, um, in the previous chapter where he was, uh, the donkeys are lost, and he, he, he tells his, um, his servant that uh, he was worried that his father was going to be worried about him. And um, it also says when Samuel first told me he was going to be king, first chapter, um, first Samuel chapter 9, verse 21, Paul says, well, kind of like Gideon, am I not a Benjamite or uh, of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you want to speak like this to me? We've already already seen that, um, you know, Saul is, he he doesn't have the pride yet that he is going to, and the hardness of the heart that's going to develop over time. He's got a tender heart. what this is clearly is insecurity. Now, it is true that any way you look at it, you can call insecurity whatever you want, but insecurity really is sin, right? Uh, if God has called you to do something, um, and you're like, oh, I can't do it, I can't do it, you know, uh, the book of James says, if God has told you to do something in your don't, it's sin, but um, he's clearly, it's, it's not, I don't think this is rash disobedience or anything like that because in the next chapter, the guy's a superhero filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's just clear that at this time, you know, he's like, oh, I cannot deal with it. I mean, it's like a strange thing. One day he's farming and the next day he's been called to be king of Israel. And so he's hiding. And um, that's probably what a few of you are doing. 
God's called you to do something and you're hiding. And you're trying to blame it on, oh, you know, oh, me, little old me. But God's called you to do something. You've got to step up and you've got to do it. Because, you know, if, if we can do it in our own strength, then it's, you're right, it's not the Lord. So if you say, well, I don't have the strength, well, you and, every, you and everyone else who's ever done anything for the Lord, where the God was glorified. And so he's hiding in the stuff, and they ask, hey, 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 Lord, where is he? <laughs> he's hiding in the stuff over there. Verse 24 says, And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen, that there is no one like him among all the people? So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty, and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. Now, this is another one. You know, on Tuesday nights, we like to like pick apart the verses. This is a really tough one. Um, there's this book that we don't know anything about. It's referenced here. It's it, he, a book. It says that he says he wrote the behavior of royalty down. He explained that to the people, and he wrote it down, and, and he wrote it in a book, and we don't know about this book. We don't know what became of it. Um, to add to the problems, there are other translations where it says behavior of royalty. Some of the translations say b- the manner or behavior of a king. Others say the, the, the manner of a kingdom. So rather than behavior of, of royalty, it, it, it's... It's translated manner, manner of a kingdom. So some people think it was like a constitution. Like we have a constitution in our country where there's checks, powers, and powers, uh, separation of powers and balances where there's the, the legislature, there's the executive power, there's the judicial power. And some people think it was kind of like a, um, a constitution. It says he explained the behavior to the people, the behavior of royalty. And then he sent them all home. In verse 26, And Saul also went to Gibeah, and valiant men went with him, whose heart God had touched. So that's interesting too to me at this point. Um... You know, the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1 that God has given us all things for life and godliness. Is that verse 3 of 2 Peter chapter 1? God has given us all things we need for life and godliness. And here you see Saul's future failure is not going to be because of the Lord. It says God touched valiant men. It says, he, it says valiant men went with him whose heart God had touched. See, God was giving him everything he needed to succeed. It can just never, ever be said if we fall flat on our face for whatever reason, in job, ministry, family, whatever, that it's our fault. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. God has given us all things we need for life and godliness, including the baptism of the Holy Spirit, by the way, um, which, which really we need to ask for. 
Verse 20 says, but some rebel said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presence, but he held his peace. See, he started off well. He really, really, really did. He held his peace. The Bible says that we're going to learn, Saul, this guy is like a serious warrior. He's also bigger than everyone. He could have gone to these guys who, who said, oh, who's this guy, man, over here? He's going to, he could have gone and whipped their tail. That's what he could have done. But he held his peace. He didn't get angry. Now, I like teaching from 1 Samuel chapter 11 because it's a standalone teaching on anger. Anyone ever had an anger problem here? Anyone have an anger problem now? This 1 Samuel chapter 11 is the best teaching about anger, in my opinion, in the Bible. It's right in, in 1 Samuel chapter 11, but it really does begin in the last verse of 1 Samuel chapter 10. Some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presence, but he held his peace. So let's, let's read this next chapter. This is one chapter. It's a short one. And Saul, uh, he really does wonderfully, wonderfully here. He's a great example to, for you and me, the way he behaves in this chapter. But it's a great teaching on anger. So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go for that as well. Then Nahash, which by the way means serpent. Please don't name your kid serpent. Not a good idea. <laughs> Nahash the Ammonite. Ammonites were who? They were descendants of Lot. Remember when Lot was fleeing Sodom? He, uh, he went to his cave. His daughters thought they would never have any kids. They got him drunk and then they had kids by him. Well, one of them, uh, the Senate was, uh, are descendants of, Am, uh, of Ammon. Ammonites came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. Let's read on here. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, on this condition I will make a covenant with you that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on Israel. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you to have our eyes poked out. Wow. So, a little background here. This is the Israelites, the Jewish people who are in Jabesh Gilead. That's... That's the area, what we know of as modern-day Jordan, that is just east of the Jordan River. That's where, that's, remember back in Joshua, that's where the two or three million Israelites were before they came into the land of Israel. They were on the east side of the Jordan. Remember then the Jordan parted and they went through. But the east side of the Jordan, um, there were... Two and a half tribes who said, hey, we want to stay here on this side. And uh, who were they? They were the half tribe of Manasseh. Was it the tribe of Gad? And the half 
the Reubenites, right? So th- three, uh, three tribes in Israel, or half of, the tri- half of those tribes, there was one full tribe that stayed, but, uh, but, but uh, they wanted to stay uh, on the east side of the Jordan because there was great pasture land, and they're like, wow, we're, we have all this cattle, we want to stay here. So uh, there were, initially there was a misunderstanding, Moses got extremely mad, but then uh, they said, no, look, we want to be part of you guys, we, we'll go in to the promised land, we'll fight uh, f- for you, we'll, we'll establish the nation of Israel and the land of Israel, then we'll come back to our land. And that's what they did. The problem with that is that that makes them just vulnerable to the, their enemies. They're not, they're not really in the, the land of Israel as it was originally proposed. They, they, they picked up some additional land there, and um, here they uh, go to this uh, Ammonite, uh, his name is Nahash, serpent, and um, they say, hey, would you, would you make a covenant with us and we'll serve you? Meaning, just ask us for something and we'll serve you. We'll, they're essentially saying, let us be your slaves, only take care of us. And remember, this is the time of the judges. And the time of the judges is a very spiritually a low, 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 low time. Because this is not what people who are following and obeying the Lord do. They don't go up to serpent the Ammonite, a pagan man, and say, we'll be your slaves, just tell us what to do. We're going to be your servants. No, you don't do that. It's going to get worse with them. They're a pathetic group of people, but that's what we become without the Lord, right? The book of Judges says they did at that time, they did whatever was right in their own eyes. Well, you know, hey, why don't we just, we're, we're having a hard time here. We need someone to take care of us. Let's go ask Serpent, the Ammonite. Stupid, stupid, stupid. And what does he say? Okay, I'll do it. Just let me come and poke out the right eye of all your men. Well, I think we want to think about that for seven days. Um, <laughs> and so they, 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 they were going to do it. They said, give us seven days, we'll go and see if someone wants to rescue us. If not, we'll come back and you can poke um, our eyes out. Verse 4. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news and the hearing of the people. And the people lifted up their voices and wept. That's another pathetic response. You want to see the response of a godly person? Read the next verse. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field, and Saul said, What troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh, and, and says, Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. That's a response of a man of God, right there. Again, the, just the weeping of the people, again, shows the low, low state, the spiritual state of the people of Israel. Like, oh, I guess we can't help it. We're going to have our enemy poke our eyes out. I mean, and this is what is true. When you live for the devil, 
after a while, you just give in to misery in your life. I guess this is how life is. I just have to live miserable like this and accept these, accept these, um, these consequences. But Saul, on the other hand, says the Spirit of God came upon him and is Right? Is that good? And it says his anger was greatly aroused. In verse 7 it says, So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. This is a beautiful picture. This is a man who has been told, instructed by the Spirit of God to lead. And he knows that if he does not take some really, really aggressive action, these weeping, sorrowful, groveling people are not going to follow him. And, and, um, and so, yeah, he, he, this is how they communicated messages back then. Remember the, unfortunately, at the end of the, 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 the terrible story at the end of the book of Judges where the, Benj- the, uh, the, where the Levite cuts up his um, concubine to 12 different pieces and sent her to 12, the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, he, here he is, he cuts up oxen, and he's, and he's saying, listen, if you don't come and join this battle against this wicked people, these enemies of God, you're going to be in big trouble. You're going to be in, in big trouble. Let's continue, verse 8. When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, so they, they really joined them. That's a large uh, army there. And the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who came, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. So basically they're telling these people who Nahash the Ammonite had said, I'm going to poke your right eye out. And they asked for seven days for an answer. Well, here's the answer they got. By tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have your help. Then the messengers came and reported to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, 
Who is he who said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may, be, we may put them to death. Remember? Previous chapter, end of, the, end of the last chapter, some people didn't like the choice of Saul. And they said, who is this guy? And remember, remember what it said? Saul held his peace. Well, here it is. Inflamed by the victory in their battle, they're like, let's find these guys and kill them. Right now, let's kill them. What does Saul do? Verse 13, but Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Isn't that wonderful? This is a different Saul than we're going to see, but it's just a wonderful thing. Verse 14, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Okay, so I'm going to just spend my remaining few minutes talking about anger. You know, anger is um, a, a problem that uh, I wouldn't... It, it, it's, it's, it's a serious, serious, serious problem, the, uh, the anger. And, and really what anger is, anger is something that protects pride. That's what you're... The anger is just a manifestation of your pride. Your, your, your anger is protecting your pride. You don't like the, the, what this or that person did to you. It hurts your pride. So you lash out in anger. Bible says the gift of the, uh, the, the Holy Spirit, though, is self-control. Now, it does say in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26, it says, um, it says, be angry, but do not sin. So there is an anger that is not sinful to express. We're not sinning when we anger in this way. And so that begs the question, well, what kind of anger do I have when it's not sinful, but it's righteous? Well, it's right here. And it's really pretty easy to define. When you're when your anger is a result of your own rights being trampled on, that's sin. A little bit more of that in a while. But when your anger, anger is a result of other people's rights or lives or souls or families being trampled on, that's, that's righteous anger. So here we see an example of, of, of righteous anger, that these, the, this, this tribe of Israel and Jabesh Gilead going to have their eyes plucked out, and, and his anger was greatly arrived, aroused after the Holy Spirit fell, fell on him, meaning it was totally spiritual anger. And it was spiritual anger that, that, that motivated him to hack up an ox and send the 12 parts to the 12 tribes of Israel. That was holy anger. It was a good result. 
And it was a holy anger that sent them into to, to battle with the Ammonites and whipped them badly. It was a holy anger. But then this same man, this exact same man, Saul, when they went to him, hey, we won. Remember those guys who were despising you, criticizing you, mocking you? Let's go kill him. At this point, Saul is led by the Holy Spirit. And you don't see any anger. So he's held his peace in the previous chapter. He's essentially doing the same thing here. Self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, I was teaching from this chapter many years ago in the Dorchester Bible study. <laughs> and I asked this question, and I almost hesitate to, to ask it because it almost sounds like a silly question, and it, but, but um, I, 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 I think it's a legitimate question. And so anyway, I asked the study. So if someone comes up to you and completely unprovoked, you did nothing. They just punch you super hard in the face and deck you. According to the Bible, if you get anger, angry, is that sin? <laughs> the answer, I believe, is that's sin. Because my personal rights have been... My personal life, my personal soul, my person has been trampled over. And if our one example that we have, Jesus Christ, as he is being led to the cross, he's being kicked unprovoked. In fact, not only had he done nothing wrong, he had done everything right. He was kicked, he was spat upon, he was whipped. And it's what makes our, our, our faith so incredibly unique from every other faith in the world. That when God sees your life trampled on and you not responding in anger, the world's going to be looking on and they're going to be noticing. We talked about this on Sunday morning. I mean, think about the most radical, controversial sermon that Jesus ever gave. It's the Sermon on the Mount, although this is a, uh, probably, this is in Luke, which may have been given in a different place, but uh, in a different location. But Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, you get angry at them and punch them in the face and deck them. No, it doesn't say that. It does not say that. It says, to him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. I mean, imagine. And there's the answer to the question, right? That's the answer to the question, that verse. Is it sin? If you get angry, if someone punches it now, would, would I get angry? Of course I would. 
But this is, but, but this is how wonderful and incredible our Savior is. It's really, it's an opportunity to worship him when we do a study in, study in anger. But you would be amazed as you nurture your, your relationship with the Lord from year in and year out, how harder it is over time to get angry when your life is trampled on. Because over time, it's not as easy. Rather, over time, you will notice as you grow in the Lord that it takes more and more and more to get you angry. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from, uh, and, and from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. So it doesn't say from him who, who takes away your cloak, hey, you took away my cloak. How could you dare do that? It doesn't say that. It actually says, give him your tunic too. God wants to save people through you. And the way people notice that the God that you worship is the God of the universe and worthy of them going to for salvation is this kind of lifestyle. Whether we like it or not, this is the example that we have in Christ. It's also the example we have with Saul of all people. First Samuel chapter 11 here. And so, uh, unfortunately, it's not going to stay this way with Saul. And uh, I, I do think it's, it, it's a great lesson for us that um, it's a great lesson for us that for some of you who may be a little younger in the faith, just a healthy fear of God that, that though you may be doing well, be careful. You've got to stay on your knees praying. You have to. You've got to stay with the people of God. You've got to stay with church. You've got to stay in prayer. And we learn that from the life of Saul because, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, if the, if, if, uh, if the story stopped here, it, was, it would be like, wow, the Saul guy. And unfortunately... It's not the end of the story, but uh, we'll pick it up next week in chapter 12. Eddie, if you could come up at this time. I want to separate into groups of four and five, and you know what I want to, I want to pray about this coronavirus thing. I, I, I just, I'm so deeply disturbed um, at the hysteria that's out there which is natural because there's an idolatry of life. There's an idolatry of self. There's an idolatry. And, and people, you know, when, one of the most remarkable things from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4 it is, it says that Jesus Christ defeated the devil who all our lives kept us under the fear of death. And I have 
I have personally I have just a big testimony in that area. I just I used to have basically death phobia. It, it used to immobilize me before I was saved. And um, but I, I I just I don't even I'm not even sure how we should pray. I just I think that we should be praying. Of course, we need to be taking reasonable precautions to prevent the spread of this virus. If you remember from the book of John, Jesus repeatedly hid himself when he found out they were looking for him to kill him. He took a reasonable precaution. He went and hid himself. So I'm not, I'm not against that at all. I think the Bible, I think we live as people. We live as man, just like Jesus lived as a man, and we, we support that type of stuff. But um, wow, might this be something that God can use to really get people to think of how, sh- of how fragile life is. Might this be used by the Lord to turn people to God? By all means, feel free also to, to pray that the, the Lord arrests the spread of this thing. I mean, it's always, kind of, it's always difficult for me to pray those prayers, even though I know I should, because I'm like, okay, do we deserve? Does the United States deserve? Does anyone deserve to have a virus stay away from them? I don't know. I think we deserve a famine but, or a plague, but, but, but the Bible says God is filled with mercy. But I think we can pray that God would arrest the spread of it, but that people somehow would see the hand of God. I don't know. You guys, you guys just get in, get in groups of four and five and, and just seek the Lord and, and, and pray for this thing. And pray, pray for our own church that the members of Calvary Chapel in the city, that we would be living, breathing manifestations of that verse. I think it's in Hebrews chapter 4. We're no longer enslaved to the fear of death. No, 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 no. And that we would live that out. How? Same way Samuel did his thing, by the Spirit of God.